Hey everyone, it's Cam Hurt, host of the Best Show Ever podcast, and we have got a second season coming out very soon that I am very excited about. We've got some very cool special guests, including musical acts that we all love, like Karina Reichman, Daniel Donato, Jake Brownstein from Eggy, Rick and Peter from Goose, and many more. Tune in for new episodes dropping on Osiris Media March 5th on the Best Show Ever podcast. Welcome to Wheels Off, a show about the messy reality of the creative life. I'm Rhett Miller. That's when it got wheels off. We started up and we ain't gonna stop. Oh, sound like you like it or not. That's when it got wheels off. Karen Kilgariff is one of a handful of people that has the ability to make me laugh so hard that I can't breathe, which is scary. She is scary. Her new notoriety, and by new I mean in the last five years, as the host of My Favorite Murder, is no surprise to anyone who knew her back in the Largo days around the turn of the last century when she was getting up by herself or as part of Girls Guitar Club and doing what they back then called alternative comedy. She's incredible. Like, she's got this wit that is so quick and sharp and dangerous, which is why this niche that she's found in the last half decade is so perfect. And I'm so happy for her and I'm happy for the world because the world's a better place when Karen Kilgariff is flourishing and it is great to see her flourish. I've been working on getting her to guest on Wheels Off for ever since I started recording these conversations and now that they're all over Zoom, I was able to make it work, you know, lining up schedules being what it is. It's It's a lot easier nowadays, put it that way. Silver linings abound. Anyway, I'm so glad I finally got to speak with Karen, and I really think that there's a lot of useful stuff in this conversation. So please welcome to Wheels Off, the great Karen Kilgariff. Welcome to Wheels Off, Karen Kilgariff. Thank you, my friend. I'm thrilled to be here. Oh, this is so, it's so great to see you even virtually. It's, where are you for the edification of our listeners? Where are you calling from? I am calling from Los Angeles, from the Valley. Um, I used to live in Burbank and then I moved into the Valley proper and um, it's a thrill. I love it. How long have you been in this spot? It's coming up on two years, which is, or was it already? (laughs) Um, no, it's coming up on two years this summer. Um, so it's relatively new. Yeah. This has been kind of a crazy couple of years for you though, right? How Uh, how long has my favorite murder been going? It's definitely my first pandemic. I'll tell you that. Um, (laughs) my favorite murder, we just had our fifth anniversary. So it's, yeah, it has been the past five years have been total insanity. Yeah. Well, I mean, obviously, I've been, uh, in addition to being um, a friend of yours, I've been a fan and marveling at your 
first of all, talent and also your work ethic just for so many years. I, and um, so it's been super fun to watch my favorite murder blow up like it has. Thank you. You know what? I, my, my, um, my daughter's 14 years old. And um, she and her friends were walking around this summer. We had a family that we that we quarantined with, and these two fourteen year olds that are they're so much hipper than yeah. than than we've ever been. Yes, <laughs> right? for real. And they had their AirPods in like all day on this. Um, you know, we'd spend a weekend together all day, every, full on. And of course, you know what they were binging <laughs> was you. <laughs> And I wanted so bad to like brag about no, <laughs> and I'm like, you know what? They're not even gonna care. They won't. That's they'll right. never think I'm cool. <laughs> so your um, daughter and her friend were going to swear word school. Yeah. <laughs> Anytime someone it. says that where it's like a kid that's that young, I'm always just like, sorry, oh, sorry. Yeah. Nah, they're fine. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so what creative project are you working on at the moment, and how does it light you up? God, well. I have to say the thing, and we've been working on it for a while, but we do have now our own podcast network. So we have, um, I think at this point, eight or nine podcasts on it. Um, we've been working on it for about the past three to four years. And um, especially lately, because we, you know, we're staffing up the, you know, our staff is getting bigger. I think we now have 11 people, um, whereas it truly started with me and Georgia and then me and Georgia and this woman, Danielle Kramer, who is the best and really a genius. And she started, she used to run the Meltdown um, showroom, like just doing live stand-up shows and stuff. So she's completely been in the mix um, with all the people that we know um, for years and years. Uh, so yeah. So it used to be just kind of the three of us trying to like make it happen. And, um, but then it like lately has just been kind of gaining, gaining momentum and we've been hiring more people and, um, slowly adding more and more podcasts. So it's like, I just our we have our staff meeting on Fridays and it's just a zoom where everyone gets on and just says what they're working on and people can ask each other questions or like update or whatever. And, just sitting there, it's just so thrilling because it it was so conceptual for so long and it was such a big pain and just one more thing we had to do for so long. And now it's like, it's basically like the plane has, the Southwest flight has slowly lifted off the ground. So now it really is just kind of joyous and it's running itself and um, we're getting to give people that we really love and believe in their own podcasts and, you know, whatever. It's really cool. So that is like, the kind of thing that um, it lights me up, I think, just because sometimes that's, you know, I think sometimes people look at creative work or art, like it's supposed to be this thing that's supposed to be all magical. And then just like, and then you just get a bunch of money or you get a bunch of whatever. And the truth of it is, it's, it's just fucking two hour long meetings. You know what I mean? It's a lot of listening. It's a lot of um, from my experience, it's a lot of doing something and doing it five more times and trying to make it better every time. Like there's a real unsexy element to it. That's that once you kind of accept that, you know, you can get better at it, but, um, there are points where, and I think this is true for lots of the different things I've done, but <clears throat> for this one, especially it just takes a whole bunch of work that you have to, you have to just be willing to put in the hours. And um, so this one, especially it, it took a ton of work, lots of like kind of advocating for ourselves, going back and saying, this isn't, we need it different. We need it better. 
Um, yeah. And so now it's kind of going. It's really exciting. But I love that. And really, it's a creativity, like on a macro level, you're not writing material, you're not coming up with a bit or whatever, like you're putting together a structure to support other artists. And but that sounds like it has its own, like creative drive behind that as well, right? You have a vision. Yes, a vision. And but also that you're right, it's that kind of thing where I feel like I've um, learned over the years how to get good at picking people who are good at making their own art or their own creative thing, because that's the key. Like when you, in the beginning, when I first started getting jobs, I would always try to get my friends jobs as well, which is deadly. Like the, it's just a nightmare. Um, it creates so many problems, but oftentimes you, like you, the thing I learned is the best thing you can do for yourself and other people is pick people who understand how much work it is and are willing to be doing that work and be self-sufficient and kind of self-motivated. And once you can do that and you can, you can start to spot those people where it's like the reason people are good at stuff is because they've taken it on themselves to get good at it. And, um, you know, that's the difference between that. And I used to, I remember I used to like, I really want to, be a comic, but I did never wrote. I would just be like, I'll get up there and see what happens. And it's like, you know, terrible. I've done so many terrible sets of comedy, so many. And then finally, at one point, I was just like, yeah, all the people that I know and respect that do comedy write all day long. Like they really actually treat it like a job. Um, So yeah, it's just that, you know, kind of, I get to do the job, which is very satisfying. And then I also get to track my own progress of get being good at the job, which is, um, you know, I'm a narcissist. So anything like that, I'm all for entirely. <laughs> it's funny you talk about people who understand how much work it is, because I do see that. I really feel like it's the, there are people that like the work or at least welcome the work. You hear my dog? Oh yeah, I have two. Waiting, they're gonna make a noise any second. So, so let's say dog noises. It's a safe space for dog noises on this podcast. Is it weird that dogs humanize us? Like they're not humans, and here we are getting yeah. humanized. <laughs> but yeah, but maybe I just think it speaks to the work ethic. And like it's funny, the 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 comics that you know are our mutual friends that we came up with that that people didn't necessarily see the work they were doing, but there's so much work behind the scenes. And it's funny, it's how much work ethic in a way trumps so many like natural talents, right? Entirely. Yeah, you, you, and I think uh, natural talent can almost fuck you up because if you're used to things kind of coming to you naturally, then work almost is offensive. You know what I mean? Like, I think that's what I had in the beginning of standup is I was a, a conversationally funny person. I, I was raised by funny people. I always had the aim of being a comedian. I wanted to be funny. I hate homework. I hate sitting down and doing anything kind of by myself with no attention or credit involved, you know? And then I was watching these people. Like, I think you're probably thinking of the same set of people I'm thinking of, but like I came up with Patton Oswalt who I watched. He would go to a cafe every day in San Francisco and sit there and write jokes for four hours. And then when the next time I would see him do stand up, he would have an entire entirely new chunk or entirely new set. And I was up there just with my same old 10 minutes going, don't you love me? And it's that kind of, it took me a while. Cause I was like, well, I just don't, I just don't want to, like, I, I thought 
leaning on what came out naturally was fine, which it is fine if you just kind of want to do the same thing all the time. But like it was moving to Los Angeles that made me realize, oh, if you want to get in the game in any meaningful way, the people who are getting sets, getting parts, getting attention, work on it constantly and always have and like are very serious and aren't partying all the time and aren't, you know, I mean, they do, they, they pick and choose when they're going to do it, but you know, they're just serious people that treated their own work very seriously, which I was like, Oh, okay. I guess I have to do that now. <laughs> so you talk about being raised by funny people and being, you know, natural, a natural at it, which I would hundred percent have guessed about you and coming up in like the Bay area scene. And do, is there a time when you remember it clicked? Like, you're like, Oh, I'm going to do comedy or I'm going to do stand up comedy. I'm going to, this is, was there an epiphany moment? I think um, it probably was sometime in junior high when um, things got, you know, particularly awful as I think they do around that age where like, for me, it, it felt very much like all of a sudden the rules changed and all of a sudden just kind of being like a kid at the grammar school that, you know, like all of a sudden just the, all the dynamics changed. It was all about who liked who and who was popular and who was pretty and all that stuff. And I had that realization of like, uh, it's, um, I'm going to have to almost like sing for my supper was the idea I got into my head. Um, and I'd always liked the attention I got from being funny. And this was kind of simultaneous to, um, there started to be a lot of stand-up shown on local television. So in the Bay Area, there was Alex Bennett hosted on PBS. It was like, I can't remember the name of it, but it was the, it was local stand-up comics who would be on and they just would record one night at like the Fillmore or some theater in San Francisco. And then they would show, say, four comics a show. Um, and you got to see all the people that were like the headliners at the, at the clubs in San Francisco when in the eighties, when it was really big. And so then you see, you know, you saw people like Greg Proops and Sue Murphy and all those people that were doing it, you know, like road comics, like really doing it in a real way. And that's, I think seeing them on TV, but knowing they were just a half an hour away from me, I, it all made it seem like, oh, this is something I actually could do. It was very, the steps seemed very clear of how to get there. Um, so I think it was that. And then I did, I realized on the show, The Facts of Life, remember how Blair, her cousin Jerry had cerebral palsy and she would be the guest star every once in a while. I um, got in tr very much in trouble at school uh, because I used to get up on the bench at recess and do an impression of Jerry. And I wasn't, <laughs> a, you know, you couldn't tell this from the outside because it was a terrible look, especially in, you know, 2021. But um, I was just so proud that I could mimic her and do it. So I would do it. And then kids would literally gather around and laugh because I was doing Jerry. And then, you know, the the recess monitor caught me and I got sent to the principal. But it was that thing where I was just like, I want to do the thing where I'm standing up and everyone's gathered around because that's, you know, that was like this is going to be my thing. This is good. This is what's going to set me apart. I love that in the Bay area, there was a, a level of wokeness in the eighties that would recognize that that was not okay. Cause in it Texas, is not, it is not okay. My, <laughs> it would have been my, celebrated. My brother and I might've tortured my sister with a, an impression like that. Of Jerry. Uh, maybe. 
<laughs> I, I don't want to go too far out on a limb, but there was a line about just because you can walk faster than me, Blair, and talk faster than me, Blair, doesn't mean you're better than me, Blair. That might have gotten repeated in my house, and we might have to cut all of this out. Well, it was a different time, though. Like this It really was. It really was the time where no one, aside from generally uh you know, white straight men had a voice in anything. So mm-hmm. like we all were led to believe it's kind of fine to, to uh, make fun of people like that, or just kind of make fun of whoever that it, you know, y- you were always given the benefit of the doubt in a way that um, was incorrect. I mean, like we've learned to this point is just like, yeah, that's when people can finally speak for themselves or like, shut the fuck up. But the cool thing about Jerry was she was speaking for herself and yeah. she was a stand up comic. And that's that was her whole thing is, you know, I'm not drunk. I have cerebral palsy. Like that was my opener when I did my impression of Jerry. But Jerry was doing it for herself. So um, maybe that maybe I'm just trying to rationalize it in retrospect. Yeah, well, she, <laughs> she was very empowered as a yeah, performer. I, um so that's so, but you, it's funny because in the last number of years, in the last 20 years, you've kind of pivoted a lot. Like you've been on writing staffs, you've been like on camera. And then obviously now there's a podcast empire. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it's, it's funny. So like, as this has gone, I, I just wonder like how the, the word pivot is gross. I know, but that, that is that kind of thing, <laughs> right. Where it's, you've, you've kind of followed your muse to these different places. And I just wonder like, what was that like? Was it scary? Well, yeah, because usually um, I was doing it because there was no, you know, I pivoted from trying to be a performer on camera just because I would audition and kind of not get parts or I would get it every once in a while, but not enough to like make a living or live, you know, (laughs) live in a way that you eat more than top ramen. So like, and, and I really actually, I didn't realize it at the time, but like I moved to LA when I was 24 because everybody else in San Francisco was moving to LA and it was just this kind of like what everyone was doing. And there was lots of stand up comics who were being given shows. So again, there was like a very clear path to like, here's the next thing you could want. But once I was here and doing it, I hated, I hated it. I hated auditioning so much. I, I knew I wasn't going to get picked. I knew it was bad. Like my head um, made it so miserable for me. So the first time I got a writing job, um, and it was Jay Johnston from Mr. Show who told me, he was like, Hey, I'm, I just got this job on this new sketch show. It was after Mr. Show ended. He, he pivoted right to producing. And he was like, you should submit. They always need female writers. And I was like, Ooh, that's a really, you're right. And then I was like, yeah, but I didn't go to college. And I don't, I never took like a sketch writing class. And he goes, what are you talking about? You were just on Mr. Show for four years. Like, just write like any of those sketches. And I was like, oh. And so I submitted and got the job. Um, and the second I started writing writing on this show, I was like, oh, thank God. This is what I was supposed to be doing all along because I had like control over what was on the page. I had control. And I never had to worry about like, what I looked like or if I was blank enough, you know what I mean? Whatever enough. Um, all of that was off the table and I still had all that like creative satisfaction and none of the pressure, none of the like intense self-loathing issues, none of whatever. And it was like, then I knew I was like, Oh, this is what I should have been doing this whole time, obviously. Um, so that pivot was great because then it took me out of this weird, you know, when you're a performer in LA, it's just like a weird beauty contest. Like talent doesn't 
even really come into it. It's just like whose face fits with whose and how tall are you compared to who else is on the show? And there's a bunch of other shit that's going on that kind of has nothing to do with um, what you can do. And when, as that revealed itself to me, it was very, it was very disillusioning, but then it was also just like, well, I'm never signed up for this. If I knew, <laughs> I knew it was going to be like this. Um, yeah. So that, that pivot was a huge relief. Um, yeah. And then everything else after that was like, I bought a house and had to pay my mortgage. So there was just, it's really nice that people interpret that as a work ethic, but it was purely like it was business. I just had to make sure I didn't go into foreclosure. So yeah, that was forced work ethic after that. So it's, I could see why writing would appeal to you, just knowing your personality. And I feel so bad for actors who are constantly at the mercy of other people oh, writing for them. I don't, yeah. yeah, I don't know how they, uh, writing for them and also criticizing them mm. in a way that like, if, if I'd even thought that through, I am not built for that. It's quite the opposite. Like, I don't want to hear what anyone thinks of me. I really don't want to hear it. And that's, as an actor, it's all you hear. It's amazing. It's funny. Even the, I've, I've only done a few auditions that I've been asked to do over the years. And there's a thing that happens where, when I did it, like the voice in my head that's doing the, their voice, that what they're thinking of me as I'm auditioning for them is so, it's almost unsurvivable. Like yeah. I, I can, oh. like I'm reading their eyes going, oh, wow, I can't believe how bad I am. And this is really going <laughs> badly. <laughs> but so, so, so I know that you are a, a sensitive person, right? And, and you're like, <laughs> pretty open about this. Like you're, you know, you, um, you, you take things hard when, when, when things hurt, I just wonder about like those kind of internally generated obstacles. We talk about this a lot on the wheels off, like these, um, the things that we come up against, you know, that aren't just having to fight through the LA scene and auditions, but the stuff that we do to ourselves. I wonder what tricks you've come up with over the years for dealing with that stuff. Oh, that's good. That's a good thing to talk about because I think for, well, first of all, therapy, definitely like getting a professional person's opinion about what you're, you have to report what you're hearing in your head. So someone else can be like, here's how you're wrong. Very important, (laughs) very crucial. Um, But I didn't have that for a long time. It took me a long time to go to therapy. I was very scared of it and very uh, worried about it. Um, But I did read that unbelievable quote from Martha Graham when she talks about it's about creativity, but it's it's, um, you know, she basically calls like when you get a a creative or artistic idea of something that you might want to do or whatever about uh, how you have to answer it and do it. And your opinion of it does not matter. And it's actually irrelevant. And you, you have to stay out of it. You just have to do the thing that came to you, put it on paper, write the song, whatever, write the bit, do the thing and get out of your own way. And what you think of what it is, it it doesn't have, it's like none of your business because it's, it came through you. So you're not supposed to sit there and judge it and be like the, the judge and jury, because you'll always go, it's not good enough. And that, I mean, she says it in a, in a much um, more, you know, interesting Martha Graham way, but that's the essence of it is that's the way you, that's how you fuck yourself up and basically throw away, you know, I'm sure this has happened to you where you write a song and you just think it's stupid. 
And then someone else who's really amazing tells you, I love that song. And then you go, oh, I guess I won't throw it away. Like, and how many times we do that to ourselves or just that kind of self-judgment and, uh, you know, self-recrimination or if, that, if that's the right word or, you know, self-punishment where you're just kind of are like, no, I'm stupid. And I don't know anything. And it's just like, shut up and just fucking just do like when I made that record in 2014, it was a pure exercise in get out of the way because you don't know. And if it were up to you, you'd never do anything. You can just lay on the couch and watch Netflix and like be high all the time. So you have to get out of your comfort zone, like deliver the idea that you came up with and then let other people talk about it because they'll talk about it all day long. So you just get it. I get just detach from it almost. I and think you're that's glad you, the best idea. You're glad you made that record. It's Oh, great. thank God. Yeah, yeah. 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 And it's, it's, it was like when I first started doing, doing songs, it, it was that kind of thing of like, Oh, can I do this by myself? Cause I used to do it with Marilyn Rice Cub. Can I do it by myself? Is this stupid? Am I embarrassing myself? Like all those questions, of course, that everyone comes up with. And you know what it, I, one of the first things I thought of is, um, remember when Elliot Smith used to play Largo yes. and he used to, he used to come to shows. And one time he did one of our shows and he told me after the show, we were talking about stuff and, um, this is the ultimate name drop and brag, but it's, but it's also was one of the most eye opening moments because he played on our show and the audience, first of all, it was a gross guitar club show. So there was, you know, 18 people in the audience and he walks on and does the song. So everyone that I was friends with that was in the audience was like, thank you so much. Oh my God. Like, was like crying <laughs> because they got to be there for a, the most intimate Elliot Smith show. But afterwards I was like, that was incredible. Thank you so much for being here. And he's like, oh, I just can't stand the way my voice sounds. And he went on about how much he hates his own voice. And it was like this weird, like slap in the face from the universe to me, which is like, this is what people do to themselves. And it's not you, it's people in, and I think artists and sensitive people. And if you do that, like that you're, you're cutting people out and keeping great shit from people because you just can't get over, you know, whatever you can't get over where it's like he, he, it was like witchcraft in that room that night. And his judgment of that was, it wasn't good. And he has a bad singing voice. I was just like, this is, please don't do I was just like, please don't think that, please don't say that. Like, no, but that's what we do to ourselves. So I like the idea of kind of like as an exercise, as mortified as you are, or is like, I just don't know how to do this. Like that it's a live album thing I'm talking about. And my guitar is out of tune for the entire back half of it. Like I just start playing super light on the strings because I knocked it out of tune because I don't really know how to play the guitar really. Um, but it's that kind of thing where it's like, but so what? Because it's a comedy album. And it's like, I had some good ideas and people told me they liked it. So who am I to say? Like I'm the source. I can't judge it. I think that quite I'm so glad you brought up that story because I have a similar one. And that question, the, the this question that I typically pose to wheels off guests is um it could be called the Elliott Smith Memorial question because I had mm. uh, one of my earlier shows at Largo was um a song swap and it was me and John Bryan and then Fiona Apple and Elliott Smith. 
and we're backstage up in the, you know, the, the attic beforehand or whatever. And Elliot and Fiona were doing that. They were going, oh, my God, nobody wants to hear me sing. My voice oh. is so bad. Fiona Apple and Elliot, oh. like literally the two most magical performers, singers in the world. Yeah. And yeah, I think about that all the time. And so whenever I myself run into that issue of like these voices just won't leave me alone, I realize that these voices are, you know, they're they're they- ubiquitous. And they don't know shit. They always say the same thing. They always say the same thing over and over. You could be like being handed an Oscar and that voice is just trying to get this. My therapist has said this to me 900 times. That voice, which is shame, self-judgment, whatever, it's just trying to keep you safe. So it just keeps saying the same thing. And it is not based in reality. It doesn't ever grow. It's uh, like in a beautiful mind where he realizes his roommates have never gotten older, even though he's been in school for so long. Like it's that kind of thing where these are just defenses so that you don't get hurt. And that's fine, but you can't live under that. Like I, sometimes I look at Twitter and I watch people talking about Fiona Apple and like when her new album came out and the way people talk about her and I read it and just go, I wish she could read this through my eyes right now. Like, I wish she would know this and see this the way I see it. But I think that's part of being an artist is like Fiona, if Fiona Apple uh, thought she was awesome she would not be who she is. You know what I mean? She should think she's awesome. We all think she's unbelievable. I've seen her do shit at Largo where I'm crying, but also like my life is changing because of what she's singing and how she's doing it. But she's, you know, you can't be on the other end of your own art. So you can't know what other people know about you. So you have to trust if they tell you, like you have to trust people, I think. Oh my God. This is also reminding me of the opposite of if someone does believe that they're awesome, right? What a giant problem that is. And I think about, (laughs) I think about, there was some artist, an Irish artist, now that I think of it, and John Bryan had a quote, like, I couldn't really put my finger on what it was that bothered me. And John goes, oh, that guy, he should be shot with balls of his own shit. And I was like, oh my God. Okay. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's it. <laughs> like he just, he believed the hype too much. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I love that. Well, cause that's also, I think, I, I mean, this is something Paul Tompkins and I used to say to each other all the time, which is this 80% of people aren't good at stuff. <laughs> like we don't really have to sit around and talk about hating people or judging people because generally people aren't that good. So when, when people are good, it's like so special. And so they are different than everybody else. And, and I love to think I'm in that group of people. And I like, that's my aim. That's what I want. I want to be in that special percentage. And that's a debatable thing and it doesn't really matter. But when I'm around the people that are, it's just, it's that thing where you're just kind of like, holy shit, this is not, you know, you could, you could go see, or, you know, someday you will again, you could see live music in Los Angeles. You can see five shows a night, you know, seven nights a week. You will not see Fiona Apple happening anywhere or and Elliot Smith. There's all kinds of people that are mimicking them. There's all kinds of, but the difference is both of them and Elliot in particular, the uniqueness on both of them, but I'm just thinking of why Elliot would go, I don't have a good singing voice. And it's like, right, you'd never be in Phantom of the Opera, but nobody fucking wants that from you. Nobody wants that. Like nobody's coming 
because of that. And what you're giving is something completely unique and no one can do it. And no one's done it since. Like, that's the thing. I think you can't appreciate your own uniqueness or, and if you do, yeah, you've been, you are basically drinking your own bathwater. So (laughs) goodbye. (laughs) You're, You're on your way away from like the so- the specialness source or whatever. Um, so finally, I wonder what advice you would have for a Karen Kilgariff uh, of 21 years old working in today's. Stop drinking. Stop drinking. <laughs> <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> sorry. Sorry. Go ahead. No, that's it. I mean, I just wonder, like, <laughs> if you could speak to a 21-year-old you, but networking now, um, just because the world has changed so much, um, what advice might you give yourself? And obviously, that's great advice right there. Yeah, that one is, well, if you're trying to get into the biz or whatever, then curbing addictions is a great uh, thing to start working on, aside from what you're actually trying to do, um, because it just isn't going to help you. The people that are working all the time and doing it all the time. Like I just listened to the um, Tom Petty biography and they were talking about like, yeah, people did stuff here and there, obviously. And and musicians do stuff on the road, you know, cause they're on the road just doing this, a lot of the same songs over and over. But like Tom Petty was able to be a legend for that long because he didn't do drugs. He wasn't, you know, that wasn't his lifestyle. His lifestyle was like, I am a journeyman musician that basically meets up with these super talented producers and just tries to write hit songs all day, every day. Um, there's such a, that's the Warren Zane's biography. If anyone's looking for a book, it's unbelievably good. But um, yeah, I think it's like, treat your, treat the thing that you want to do really bad as a serious business and treat yourself kind of seriously in doing it. Um, and look for people who are, who have done that and, like the successful people who worked their way there. I think it's just about um, putting in the hours, like if, as if you were a ballerina, you know what I mean? Like you can't be a naturally ball, a naturally good ballerina that then is just like in the nutcracker. It doesn't work. You have to go obviously every day for six hours and, you know, work every muscle and learn every step and you just treat it seriously, even if it's comedy or even if it's writing and you're the only one that's looking at it. You just respect it, I think. Well, I love, yeah, you, you've said that a few times now, and I love it. Like, the you have to approach your comedy seriously. <laughs> I like it. Well, I mean, I do. I mean, I think that you're living proof of that. I mean, I've I've watched you work so hard, and I've watched you take it seriously. And I just, I'm, I'm so proud of you. I think you're so cool, Karen. Thanks, Rhett. You're the best. I My favorite is that conversation that started up on Twitter where people are like, wait a second, is Karen singing on Rhett Miller's album? And like, we blew my, it was like, we put in an Easter egg 10 years ago on that album or however long it was longer than that. Um, 20 years ago. No. Well, hold on. It was about, oh, two. So 19 19 years ago. (laughs) How old are we? This is fucking horrifying. 33, I think something. It just made me laugh so hard. It was the coolest. Like I was like, yeah, that's right. (laughs) Yeah. I was on that album. It's, I blew yeah, your mind. This is the coolest. <laughs> so yeah, thanks for having me. Oh, this is really great. And I can't wait till we can hang out in person IRL. Yeah, for real. I'd like to, I would very much like to go to a, either a Rhett Miller or an old 97 show, please. We'll make it Sometime happen. soon. All right. Well, you rock. Take care of yourself. Woo! Thank you. Good to see you.
All right. Thank you so much for listening to Wheels Off. Please be sure to rate and review the show on iTunes. That helps us appear higher in the search results and lets other folks know that it's a cool podcast to listen to. Also, as the kids say, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or anywhere else that you listen to shows like this so that you never miss an episode. This has been Wheels Off, and I'm Rhett Miller, encouraging you to create every day. Thanks, y'all. Hey there, I'm Johnny Christ from Avenged Sevenfold, and I've got a podcast called Drinks with Johnny you're going to want to check out. I sit down with a bunch of different people from all different walks of life, from professional wrestlers to actors, comedians, fighters, musicians, everything in between. I'm just looking to make some friends and have a good time doing it. So if that sounds like something you're into, go check out Drinks with Johnny, streaming everywhere now.